welcome back to At The Buzzer. This is the second episode of our weekly podcast. I'm Tyler Fertel, here with my co-hosts, Campbell Klein, Dean McCollum, and Andrew Lobliner. Today we will be discussing the return of sports in America. The NBA bubble is bursted, the MLB season is off to the races, and football is coming soon. Wow, it's nice to have sports back. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's get started. The MLB season is underway, and there have already been so many exciting games just in one week. The Yankees-Nationals opening day game, which ended in the sixth inning because of heavy rain, along with the Dodgers-Giants game, opened up the season. Now we're going to look at the standings for both leagues and discuss who has or hasn't been living up to the hype and who has been surprising through one week. All stats and standings are as of Friday morning. Andrew will start with the AL. Now, starting off with the World Series favorites in AL, the New York Yankees. The Yankees are off to a hot start where they started 4-1. They signed Garrett Cole this offseason, and he's already gotten off to a 2-0 start and pitched very well for the Yankees. Giancarlo Stanton, who hasn't been fully healthy the past couple years in New York, even getting boos from fans occasionally, but now since there are no fans, that's not a problem. He's batting 500 this year, along with DJ LeMahieu, who's batting 412. Also in Yankees news, Aroldis Chapman has tested positive for coronavirus. That's a huge loss for the Yankees, but Zach Britton is stepping in nicely for them in their closer role. Now let's move on to the Cleveland Indians, who started off the season 5-2. Jose Ramirez has been their best batter so far, batting 440 at the plate. Also, Shane Bieber has become an early Scion candidate. So far, he is 2-0 with 27 total strikeouts and an ERA of 0.00. That is just nuts. I have never seen anyone with an ERA of 0-0, even with only two starts. Now let's move to the Astros, the defending AL champs, who have had a slow start. They're 3-3. Three and three. They've had a couple good players, Michael Brantley and Carlos Correa, who've been off to a hot start, both batting 435 and 409. However, stars like Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, and George Springer have not been off to a very good start. Justin Verlander has an elbow injury, so that'll keep him on the aisle for a few weeks, and that makes a huge dent in the pitching rotation for Houston. Now, Tyler will talk about the NL. So, I'm going to start in the NL with the NL West, and I'm going to talk about the Rockies, the Padres, and the Dodgers, who are all over 500. The Rockies' lineup has been very consistent through their first five games. They have started with a 4-1 record, and their best batting average in their 1-9 through lineup is... 0.274, but their lowest is only 0.214. So that's really good, and their whole lineup has shown that they can all hit well. And Daniel Bard got his first major league win in eight years, which is crazy. That one win was eight years ago, and his next one was eight years later. That's crazy. And he pitched one and a half scoreless innings in relief. So now I'm going to head to the Padres. The Padres are off to a very fast start, their best start in a long time. Eric Cosmer is off to an amazing start where he's batting 500, slugging 1,000, and his OPS is 1,583. Three players on the team have two home runs, Trent Grisham, Manny Machado, and Will Myers. The bullpen has been playing well with Drew Pomerantz, Joey Lucchesi, Emilio Pagan, and Luis Perdamo, along with Kirby Yates, who has closed the game and got them a couple saves. That is all for the Padres. Now we'll be heading to another World Series favorite, the Dodgers. The Dodgers have started with 5-2, and two, winning five of their first seven games. Corey Seager and Justin Turner have both gotten off to fast starts, batting 321 and 308. Max Muncy has already hit three home runs. He is slugging 621, and his OPS is 1,010. 
Mookie Betts hasn't played to his full potential after receiving a massive contract extension. Now, Campbell is going to go into depth with contract details. Okay, so um, Mookie Betts, the ex-Red Sox right fielder, has signed a 12-year, $365 million contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Along with Betts' one-year deal this year worth $27 million, the total contract comes out to 13 years, $392 million. This deal does not include opt-outs or a no-trade clause. This deal becomes the second largest contract in MLB history behind Mike Trout's deal. Betts' contract comes with the largest signing bonus ever, with a total of $65 million. The addition of Betts makes the Dodgers favorites to win the World Series. Guys, how do you think the addition of Betts is going to hurt your team's chances of the World Series, or how do you think he's going to affect the Dodgers after a slow start, as Andrew said? Well, I personally think that even though Mookie's gone off to a slow start, he's a very high-tier baseball player. I think that as the year goes on and people start to get off their rust because Mookie's obviously a little rusty, he's only going to get better, and he's just only going to deserve that Dodgers contract more, and yeah. Um, now we will go to Andrew Loveliner, who will be talking about the Cubs. All right, so in the NL Central Division, we have the Cubs leading the division right now. So far, Wilson Contreras and Nico Honer are both off to really good starts, batting 313 and 389. However, their MVP candidate from a few years ago, Chris Bryant, is off to a very slow start, only batting 91. This is not a good sign for the Cubs, as their best player is not performing well. Their other star, Anthony Rizzo, has already hit three home runs, slugging 769 with an OPS of 1,014. Now I'm going to talk about the Cardinals. The Cardinals have had a little bit of a COVID-19 problem on Friday morning. The Cardinals, whose record is 2-3, and three, had two players test positive, and their game against Brewers later on Friday has been suspended. This is a blow for the Cardinals, seeing that a, a couple other teams in the NL have already had players that tested positive, and this is never a good side for any team, especially with the pandemic that's going on around us. Okay, so now I'm going to head to Andrew, who's going to talk about the Marlins, Phillies, and their COVID-19 outbreak amongst their players and coaches. All right, so yes, the NL East has become very interesting due to the coronavirus. So far, the Miami Marlins have had 20 players and coaches test positive for the coronavirus. That's more than a half of their traveling roster right there. The Marlins have been shut down, which means they will not play any games until further notice. The Phillies, who had just played the Marlins before their team outbreak, was also tested. And now a few players and coaches on the Phillies have been tested. And the Phillies are now shut down, which means they cannot perform all team activities or play any games until further notice from the MLB. The Nationals, who were set to play the Marlins this past weekend, voted against going to Miami because of the outbreak. The league will make the ultimate decision, but the Nationals... If the Nationals players don't want to play the Marlins, that's not a good sign for the MLB. Thank you, Andrew, for that. It's never a good sign for the MLB that a bunch of players on a team have tested positive, and we hope everyone ends up okay, and uh, the MLB can continue swiftly without risking players' safety. Now we will head to Campbell and Dean, who will have some opening night NBA news and stats. So it was a very exciting opening night in the NBA bubble the Utah Jazz took on the New Orleans Pelicans, and the Jazz ended up taking home the victory, 106-104 to in a close game. Campbell, you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, so the Pelicans came into the game as favorites by two and a half points, and I know all of us are NBA fans, and I think the Pelicans have a lot more of an interesting young team with Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, 
Lonzo Ball, all of their star players. So I think everyone thought they were going to win the game, and they even led at one point by as much as 16 points. And in the game, let's go into some of the statistics. So for the Jazz, Donovan Mitchell scored 20 points with five rebounds and five assists, and Jordan Clarkson came off the bench and went eight for 17 from the field to score 23 points. Now, Dean, you want to talk about uh, the Pelicans' statistics? Yeah, so Drew Holiday, J.J. Redick, and Brandon Ingram all starred in this game, and they all scored upwards of 20 points. And the game was tied late, and on the Jazz's final possession of the game, Donovan Mitchell was able to dish it into Rudy Gobert into the paint where he was fouled and knocked down the two clutch free throws to give them a two-point edge. Campbell, what do you think about Rudy Gobert's clutchness right there? You know, Rudy Gobert, I think that was a really good sign that he can be clutch in late moments. He's still a young player with not a lot of playoff experience, and I think that's a really good sign for the Jazz. Is I think now they know that they can rely on him. Now we'll talk about Zion Williamson's poor performance. He scored 13 points with zero assists and one rebound with a plus-minus of minus 16. Now for the whole group here, how do you think Zion's going to improve the rest of the year, or do you think he's not going to improve at all? Uh, yeah, I'll start off by talking about Zion's performance. Um, he didn't really have a good night. He started off shooting very efficiently, but as the game went on, the Utah Jazz were able to claw their way back, and Zion just did not play well under that pressure. And he's going to have to pick it up for sure, or else the Pelicans as a whole will not play well. And one other thing I'd like to point out, the Utah Jazz were actually missing their starting power forward, Bojan Bogdanovic, due to, I think he was getting surgery uh, when the ball was going on, so he won't be able to play for them. And he's a very impactful player for the Utah Jazz. So since the Pelicans lost to the Jazz without Bojan, that's saying something about the Pelicans, and they really need to tighten up and get their team chemistry up. Tyler, do you have anything to say about that? Yes, I do. I have something to add about Zion Williamson. Well, personally, I don't think Zion Williamson was that bad. He only played 15 minutes in the whole game. The Pelicans had to restrict his minutes because he had to leave because of family matters and then came back three days before the game. So I think that they had to limit him because he wasn't technically completely game fit. So he scored 13 points through 15 minutes on six for eight shooting. Personally, I think, especially for a rookie, that's good. And as he gets more minutes, he's just going to score more points. So I personally think that this is a good start for Zion Williamson in the minutes he played. And that as the season moves on, and if they can make the playoffs or a playing game, I think that he will really impact the game. Yeah, I agree with you that his stats uh, on paper looked pretty good. But when he was on the court, he did have a very bad plus minus. So he's definitely going to have to uh, up his impact on the court rather than just his stats being good. But I agree with you on what you said about his stats. After the Pelicans lost to the Jazz, Pelicans are now four games out of the eight seed. How do you guys think their chances are looking at this point? Um, I still think the Pelicans have a pretty good chance of um, taking home that eight seed uh, to get into the playoffs. Most people actually have them being their eight seed, but this is actually a pretty big setback for them as they're definitely going to have to improve in these next seven regular season games. So personally, I think that it's not as it's not going to be as easy for the Pelicans as people say it is. Although they do have the easy schedule in the bubble, I think that their lack of playoff experience in big games and playing great teams is going to really affect how they play. The only really player with great playoff experience is J.J. Redick, and maybe another player that you can maybe consider has lack of experience is Derek Favors. So I think that if B.I. can step up and be a leader like he was um, – against the Jazz and maybe lead them to more victories, I think that, yeah, they might have a chance to get to the play-in and uh, take over the Grizzlies. But 
they're still the Trailblazers and maybe even the Spurs and Suns and Kings. So they have to get, they're going to have to win a lot of games and uh, they're going to have to show who they are and beat those Grizzlies with a really determined John Morant and a young team too. So, yeah. I think the Pelicans' playoff chances are still looking good. Even with this one loss to the Utah Jazz, they still have a good young core. They still have Brandon Ingram, who's been averaging 20 points. They still have leaders and veterans in Drew Holiday, Derek Favors, and J.J. Redick. All those guys have playoff experience. So I still think that the Pelicans' chances for at least making a play in are very good. And I think their young guys like Zion and Josh Hart and Lonzo Ball uh, bring a lot of energy and intensity to their team. And I think that'll really help them down the stretch. Now we'll move on to the Lakers-Clippers game. And as our viewers might not know, three of the four of us are extremely big Lakers fans. And last night, the Lakers came out with a huge 103-101 to victory over the Clippers. LeBron had a slightly poor shooting performance going 6-for-19 with 16 points. But he added to the stat sheet 11 rebounds and 7 assists. Anthony Davis was also extremely dominant with 34 points and 8 rebounds. Now, Dean, you want to talk about the Clippers duo of Kawhi and Paul George? Yeah, despite Anthony Davis and LeBron James being a pretty solid duo for this past game, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George went off with Kawhi dropping 28 and Paul George scoring 30 points. Um, now we're going to talk about how there were many lead changes during the game. Campbell, what do you think about the constant lead changes that the Lakers and the Clippers had? The Lakers were up by like 10, then the Clippers were up by 10. What do you think about the team's defenses and offenses? Well, for those of you that didn't watch the game or didn't watch the full game, the game was extremely back and forth. Whenever the Lakers bench came in, the Clippers took a lead. Then whenever LeBron and AD came back in, the Lakers took a lead. Like, it went back and forth the whole game. The Lakers, like, at halftime, the Lakers were leading by two. And going into the fourth, the Clippers were leading by one. This game, like, couldn't have been any closer. It was a great game, to be honest. Uh, you want to talk about what happened coming down to the wire at the end of the game that sealed it for the Lakers? Yeah, so Alex Caruso had one of the biggest plays of the game. With about 45 seconds left, he was able to steal the ball and save it from going out of bounds. A very clutch play from Alex Caruso. And uh, 15 seconds later, about Paul George hit a super clutch three to tie the game at 101. And uh, now we're moving on to the game winner, LeBron James. Missed the floater, but was able to get his own rebound. Five Clippers were defending him, and he was still able to lay it in. Clutch stuff from the King. Campbell, what do you think? You know, LeBron's going to be LeBron. That's just another great shot to go in his highlight reel. That'll be a shot he'll remember forever. Now let's sort of talk about what this is going to tell us for the suspected Western Conference Finals matchup. So the Lakers in this game only shot 30% from three. Super poor shooting performance. But um, the Clippers also were pretty bad with 20 turnovers. And the Clippers, as we all know, were missing some of their best players, Montrez Harrell and Lou Williams. All of you guys, how do you think the Clippers are going to like play better with Montrez and Lou in the playoffs? Um, so for me, at least, you talk about like um, it wasn't the best shooting performance and for the Lakers and it wasn't the best performance for the Clippers either. And that just shows that after four months and only – three scrimmage games, teams are going to be rusty. I mean, it's going to take games for them to get get back to the where they want to be. And as a Laker fan, this is hard to say, but Lou Williams and Montrose Harrell, I think, could make an impact in the playoffs. And it could be really interesting to see how it will differentiate this game if they face the Lakers in the conference finals. And I think that it's going to be really interesting because Lou Will and Montrose Harrell are both great players off the bench. 
And I think with the Lakers winning this one, it's going to be very interesting to see their impact in a potential playoff game and see if they have the experience and they have the skill to maybe bring those Clippers over the hump. Personally, I'm not going to say so because I'm a Lakers fan. And I personally think that the Lakers overall have have what it takes to be that finals winner, but you never know. Yeah, I'd just like to add, uh, the Lakers uh, did get a bit of a lifesaver when Lou Williams and Montrose Hill uh, were announced that they will not be uh, playing in the game. Um, it'll be really interesting to see the full-strength Lakers versus the full-strength Clippers, and that is a match that we will probably see this upcoming playoff. Andrew? Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to hopefully seeing a Lakers-Clippers-Western Conference Finals. Uh, I think the 20 turnovers for the Clippers is not a very good sign, but also they miss Lou Will and Montrose Harrell, who have playoff experience as well, who will be able to perform better in those late-game situations other than guys like Landry Schumet or Jermichael Green or Reggie Jackson. I think as far as the Lakers go, LeBron did not have his best game, but he was still able to clutch up in the final moments. So I think, you know, his clutch ability is still there. I think his poor shooting performance will improve by the playoffs since he has a few more seeding games uh, before that time. So I think this is gearing up to be a very interesting and exciting playoffs. Okay, so like we were talking about before, Lou Will and Montrez, are probably, they're going to return from the playoffs. But something that's being overlooked right now is that Rajon Rondo is probably going to return in the playoffs for the Lakers. So I think that if that Lakers-Clippers matchup does have, yes, that Montrez Harrell and Will Lou Williams will be back to give the Clippers full strength. But I think Rajon Rondo could give the Lakers another great option at the point guard position to guard players like Lou Will and to give a lot of assists and maybe keep the ball out of LeBron's hands so he can have a little more space and room to, to play make and give the ball to AD and Dion Waiters and Kuz. It's going to be really interesting to see if it gets there, if, it, if that series does happen in the Western Conference Finals. It's going to be very interesting to see how the games go and who's going to win. Well, to continue what Tyler was saying, I think I was watching the game last night. Kuzma was hitting down big threes. If he can hit down big threes in clutch moments, those points are going to come in crucial. He's going to get late game minutes. That's really what the Lakers need. And to talk about Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell, I'm personally a little bit scared about it. I'm a Lakers fan, so I'm scared of that that combo coming off the bench because right now in that game, our bench was better than the Clippers bench, and that's not going to be the case next time we see them in the playoffs. So I'm a little scared about that. Also, Dion Waiters of the Lakers did not have his best game. He was, I think, 5 for 10 from the field and 1 for 5 from 3. That's not the greatest performance of all time. And also J.R. Smith, the recent signing, he's still a little rusty. He's going to get better with practice. So I think both the Clippers and Lakers are missing pieces. So it's going to be a very interesting matchup in the playoffs. Um, Yeah, uh, Campbell did mention that Deion Waiters didn't shoot well from behind the arc. But uh, I did think Deion Waiters' impact was uh, actually very underrated. I think people are overlooking what he can actually do on the court. He was weighed by the Miami Heat. Uh, earlier this season, and I think people have been underrating him a lot. He's actually a pretty good player. I really liked what I saw from him last night, even though he missed quite a few three-pointers. He still had a bunch of clutch passes and clutch plays, and he definitely made a huge impact on the Lakers yesterday. All right, well, I know we're all hoping to see that matchup in the Western Conference Finals. Let's move on to the new MLB playoff format. The MLB and the MLB Players Association agreed to expand the playoffs this season from 10 teams, which is five teams in each league, to 16 teams, which means that there is going to be eight teams in each league. 
there will be no buys. Seeds one through six will be the first and second places of each division, and seeds seven and eight will be the remaining teams with the best record in each league. The wild card round is best of three, the divisional round is best of five, and the league conference finals and World Series are both best of seven. So my question that I'm going to propose here for everyone to answer is, what do you think about this? Is it, is it a good idea or a bad idea to expand the playoffs? And what team or group of teams do you think that will most benefit from the postseason expansion? Well, definitely right off the bat, I think that this is definitely a good idea for the MLB as a whole to have more teams in the playoffs. And also with no buys, that, that's good for most teams. But for star-studded teams like the Yankees and Dodgers, who are we're probably looking forward to first-round buys because, you know, they're World Series contenders. They're some of the best teams. They were looking forward to those buys, but now they're going to have to play an extra series of baseball. But I do think it's interesting that these are only uh, best of three series and all the games we play at home. So for a team like the Yankees or Dodgers, uh, very a World Series contender, you know, probably going to become first in their division. It's still a huge advantage for them. But I do like it adding the second place division and a wild card to have more teams in the playoffs. I think it'll make it more interesting. And, you know, more baseball only means more fun. So I like this overall. Campbell? Well, I think this is a great idea, the new format, because it's simply unfair to judge baseball teams just based off 60 games, because if they go on a little cold streak, it's unfair that they, like, change to a 60-game season is just ridiculous, so they need to make more spots in the playoffs. And I'm going to go to my winners. I think the winner is going to be, like, the middle teams that are not, like, exactly World Series contenders or powerhouses, but they're also not, like, in the stage of rebuilding, so... In terms of projected win-loss records, team within the 30 to 35 win area will most likely make the postseason. So this means teams like the Mets, Athletics, Cubs, and Brewers could sneak into the playoffs as opposed to previous years when they wouldn't. So Even the Padres. Yep, even the Padres. And as we all know, when the postseason comes around, your record goes back to 0-0 zero and zero and everyone has a shot. So I think the more teams, the more chances, the more fun. Dean, do you agree with me, Andrew, and Campbell, or do you disagree? Um, yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Um, the more games, the better. Um, if there's more baseball games, like uh, Campbell and Andrew mentioned, there's more fun, there's more stuff to watch. We miss sports, and now we're getting rewarded by watching even more. So I think that's a very good idea. Yeah, I like it for teams that might not get in the postseason in a 162-game season. I like it that they're playing only 60 games a season, so they're giving more teams a chance to make it in the postseason, maybe surprise some teams. So I think that's cool. Campbell, you have more to add? Yeah, I have a little more to add. So as uh, Andrew said, the losers are definitely the top teams, the World Series contenders like the Astros, Dodgers, Yankees, Nationals, Twins. And now there's no incentive to win their division because – they're trying not to compete in the wild card round. I understand that they'll still have home field advantage, but it's not totally the same without fans supporting them in attendance. I understand like being at your home field is a big advantage, but it's it's simply not the same as having all your fans rallying behind you, encouraging all your players. And now I'll move on to the ultimate winners, which are the fans and the owners. It's fairly obvious as to why the fans are the ultimate winners more baseball, more games. It's just more fun. We have so much time and so much baseball to watch. It's going to be so much fun for all baseball fans across America. And owners are also the winners because the postseason brings in a lot of money. And the more teams in the postseason, the more games are played, the more ads are run, the more money is made for the owners and the teams. And 
I don't think there's any owner in the MLB that doesn't want more money. So I think this uh, new playoff idea is awesome. Okay, now we'll move on to the more recent MLB news, the new extra inning MLB format, which was just implemented for this season. So the format is the last batter from the previous inning starts on second base, and it just plays like a normal inning from there. And the point of this is to make the game go a little quicker and gives the team a better chance to score more runs. And so Campbell, the first game uh, that this new format was used was the Angels versus Athletic Games in their first game of the new season. What do you have to say about this? Yeah, so on opening day, the game went to extra innings, and Matt Olson of the Athletics, the first baseman, launched a walk-off grand slam to win the game over the Angels. Such a great game. It was the last time a grand slam was hit on opening day was in 1986. And I think this new playoff format is super interesting because some teams strategize to go for a bunt and advance the second the player on second base to third. Most teams aren't doing that. It's just cool to see how they're trying to strategize. Also, it was used in the Astros-Dodgers game. So this new extra innings format is used to make the game go a little faster so games aren't going to the 13th, 14th, 15th, and higher innings. But in the Astros-Dodgers game, it went to the 13th inning before the Dodgers won on a two-run homer. So the extra innings rule has been used in the minors for a year or two, and the clear conclusion is that it speeds up the game and there's not a bunch of extra innings to tire out relief pitchers. So all of you guys, do you like this new format? And if you had the power to change it or tweak it, how would you? Yeah, and like adding to that, like on Thursday night, the Padres played the Giants, and the Padres scored six runs in the top of the 10th, which made made the game go quicker. And in the bottom of the 10th, the Giants only scored one, giving the Padres a 12 to seven win. So it was a really interesting format. And it shows that like teams can be very, very explosive and end the game quicker with this new format. Andrew, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, I actually really like this format. Well, in terms of relief pitchers, uh, a lot of relief pitchers have uh, posted on Twitter, Instagram, posting their, uh, they do not like this format because it's harder for relievers to pitch with a runner on base. You know, they have to start in the stretch. They can't go to their normal windup, which they like, and they have to constantly check runners. And as Campbell said, a lot of teams are bunting to try to move the runner over to third. And so, you know, a lot of MLB team, a lot of good MLB teams, especially if we get to the playoffs, having a runner on third with one out is almost a guaranteed run in the playoffs. So I think definitely the strategy and teams are going to definitely continue to strategize these opportunities and I do think that relievers are definitely this is definitely a challenge for relievers but I think that you know there's gonna they've been waiting months to pitch so I think that eventually they're just gonna pitch it out and I think that all the I think that the hitters will benefit more than the relievers from this but I still think that it's a good addition to the game. So Andrew talked about the pitcher's perspective on this but from a fan's perspective I think this is awesome I don't know about you guys but like for example, I'm a Dodgers fan. During that Dodgers-Astros game, like there's never a boring moment in extra innings. If it was last season and there were two outs and nobody on base, like I'd be going to like grab a drink from the fridge. But now if there's two outs, there's automatically a man on second or third. So like anything could happen at any moment. Like there's never a dull moment. It keeps me super interested in the game. And I think it's like an incredible idea by the MLB. Yeah, Dean, now, I have a question for you because I know you're not as big of a baseball fan as other people so as a player who likes sports who hasn't been as interested in baseball and especially when it goes in extra innings 
and it keeps going and going. How do you think this game will affect uh, fans like you who might not like baseball as much as other people, but still like the intensity and the quickness of the game? Um, yeah, the extra inning rule, um, since I'm not uh, really into baseball, as Tyler said in the introduction, um, I think it would be more exciting for someone who doesn't really watch baseball. I know it would be even more exciting for someone who really loves baseball and loves the sport and loves watching it. Um, so it would be more exciting coming from someone who doesn't really watch baseball that much. So if I'm turning the TV on and it's a late game and it's going extra innings, going extra innings, it'd be much more exciting for me. So yeah, that's my take on it. Okay, now we will head into the MLB, who changed doubleheader games to seven innings. So the doubleheader games will be abbreviated to seven innings starting on August 1st. The MLB is attempting to squeeze the 60-game season in more after the season was suspended because of the pandemic, which means that there will be more doubleheaders. For games that are being postponed due to current and potential COVID-19 outbreaks within the MLB, along with weather-related postponements, Shortening games to seven innings was a compromise between the MLB and the Players Association that was put together quickly. So, questions about this. Is it a good idea from the MLB to shorten these games? And does this make relief pitchers less valuable in these doubleheader games? Andrew? Um, well, I think that this is kind of the only way for the MLB to fit to have all teams play 60 games. Obviously, you've seen the Marlins and now the Phillies and the Cardinals have all players and coaches tested positive. And they want to be able to create a 60-game season for every team. And based on the format that they've previously already laid out, they're going to need to do some doubleheaders starting in August. So I think that this is definitely the best way to do it. I think it does make relief pitchers less valuable. But I think in doubleheaders, it's mainly about the hitters. Because, you know, if people are in slumps, someone could eventually go 0 for 8 in one day. Or someone could go 6 for 8 in one day and have an amazing game. So I think that definitely that's something to look out for. And yes, relief pitchers will definitely be having to pitch more and their arms will definitely get uh, more tired as the season goes on. I the think they'll have to pitch less with doubleheaders because it's yeah. only seven innings. I agree with Tyler because if, if a starting pitcher goes five, six innings, relief pitchers or closers not going to have to pitch very much. I don't. That is definitely a good point you guys bring up. But with most teams only having five starters in their rotation if there's multiple double headers for example if the marlins have three days of double headers they will need six starting pitchers if we look at the marlins roster right now they're not a very good team in the mlb so referring to them their starting pitchers are going to have trouble against some of these lineups especially in the nl east as that is a very tight race for the division they've got teams like the phillies mets and nationals who are all making playoff pitches so their bullpen is going to have to come in and pitch well for them so that's why i think the bullpen is going to be very valuable now we'll be moving on to Campbell, who will be talking about the Joe Kelly suspension. Dodgers reliever Joe Kelly received an eight-game suspension after playing a primary role in a bench-clearing incident. In the game, Kelly threw a 96-mile-per-hour fastball at Alex Bregman's head and later mocked Carlos Correa after striking him out. In my opinion, as a Dodgers fan, an eight-game suspension seems a little bit excessive in a 60-game season. That means he's missing over 10% of the team's games. And in your guys' opinions, should Kelly have been suspended for eight games, if at all? He wasn't even kicked out of the game, so how could he be suspended? I don't I don't see uh, the correlation, but what do you guys think? Well, first, I'm going to mention something first of all. So he's appealing the suspension. He played against the Diamondbacks uh, yesterday, and he pitched an inning and didn't let up a run. But he's appealing his suspension and is able to pitch until a hearing is held 
Andrew, what do you have to say about this? I just have to say one thing. I think that Commissioner Manfred is being a little soft right now. Um, ever since his uh, punishment of the Astros uh, taking away some of their high draft picks and giving them a $5 million fine, a lot of people disagreed with that decision. A lot of people thought they should have been stripped of their World Series title. But things like this have happened before. And I don't think that Joe Kelly deserves an eight-game suspension. I think that Manfred is kind of defending the Astros where in a situation where I think they should not be defended. I think that, you know, Joe Kelly, he does have a past of throwing at hitters and intentionally, but I don't think that that results in an eight-game suspension because now that's missing over 10% of the Dodgers' remaining games. So I do not think that Commissioner Manfred, I think he's now made two mistakes involving the Astros and their World Series woes. So, yeah, I don't agree with this. Really quickly, I think of their remaining games, Kelly's now missing over 15%. It was 10% of the 60-game season. Adding to this, players from around the league, specifically pitchers like Kelly, have rallied and supported him and called out the MLB for their harsh and soft suspension. So, Dean, do you have anything to say about this? Are you uh, tapping out again? Um, I'm actually not going to tap out on this topic. Um, I was pretty interested in it because I saw Joe Kelly's Instagram post um, and I was reading it and he said he apologizes. And then there was a few dots and I had to hit see more and it says to absolutely nobody. So I thought that was actually pretty funny from Joe Kelly. That's all I had to add to this. I couldn't find that on Instagram. I was looking with Andrew and we and he, yeah, Andrew and posted, he posted a picture of him with his kids, but instead of his kids' faces, it was Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, and Alex Bregman. But we're going to have to move on. So now we'll be heading to the Jamal Adams to the Seahawks trade. Dean is going to talk about this trade where it sent Jamal Adams to the Seahawks in return for a player and some picks. So now I'm going to talk about the Jamal Adams to the Seattle Seahawks trade. So the Seahawks traded Bradley McDougal, two first-rounders, and a third-round pick for Jamal Adams and a fourth-round pick. So now we're going to have a little discussion with the group. How much do Seattle's Super Bowl odds go up after this big trade, and did the Seahawks give up too much? So I'm going to start off this conversation by saying the Seattle Seahawks uh, Super Bowl odds do go up slightly because this is a win-now move coming from the Seattle Seahawks, but this move doesn't really help them in the long run, as I think they give up too many picks. And Jamal Adams is an unrestricted free agent in 2022, so he can literally walk from the Seahawks. And if that does happen, then the Seahawks definitely 100% lost this trade. If they re-sign him, though, if they get him, if they sent, get him an extension, four or five years extension, I think that it could be more of an even trade. And if he stays healthy, and if they get to the Super Bowl, I think that the trade was worth it. But in the long run, we'll see. Now, I think it was good. I think their Super Bowl odds will go up. I don't know how much. But another thing is, recently in the NFL, the Chiefs, for example, had a great offense, a good defense, not a top-tier defense, but a good defense, and they won the Super Bowl. So people have been saying that was it worth to give up that much for a defensive player when – a bunch of people have been saying that maybe offense is winning Team Super Bowl right now, not defense. Like, Lamar Jackson has been winning the Ravens games. Pat Mahomes has been winning the Chiefs games. It's been different with the 49ers, whose defense won them a bunch of games. But personally, I think that those opinions are differentiate between teams. Because, for example, Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes are decade talents. There's like They're talents that 
don't come every year. They pop up maybe every 10 years, every 20 years. So they're talents that you can't replace them. And so those kind of players, yes, they will lead teams to Super Bowls. But I think Jamal Adams, who is an all-pro safety, might have the chance to help the Seahawks lead them to a Super Bowl. So, yeah, I think it's uh, – it's, it's, it's really interesting because it really depends on how they do in the next couple of years. Well, um, as Dean was saying, I don't have a lot to say on this po- topic, but this is a total win-now move. Russell Wilson is in the midst of his prime right now, and he's coming to the end of it soon. He's definitely been in his prime for a few years now, so they, they got to make something happen quickly. So I think this is a good move by them. I also agree with Campbell. I think this is a good win-out move. I can actually compare this trade to a very similar trade, however, in a different sport. In 2016, the Cubs and Yankees made a trade. The Yankees gave away Araldis Chapman, who was probably the best closer in the MLB at the time, for a few picks and a very good young prospect named Glyber Torres. Now, looking back on the trade, it might have been a win-now move for the Yankees, having gotten Araldis Chapman a few years later in free agency, and now Glaber Torres being an AL MVP candidate for this season. But also, the Cubs were able to secure their World Series win. So it was a really good win-now move for the Cubs. Araldis Chapman, he played a big part in them winning. So I think that you can compare this to the Seahawks trade. You know, the Seahawks gave up a lot of picks and. Maybe in, you know, five, ten years, we'll be looking at some really good players from these picks. But as of right now, the Seahawks, they do need a strong safety. You know, Jamal Adams can be similar to what Cam Chancer was. And, you know, he's going to roam that defense. He's going to force fumbles. And he's a great tackler. So I think it's definitely a really good win now move. Yeah, I think that he will definitely be able to make a huge impact on that team and get them far in the playoffs. He doesn't have any playoff experience. I mean, the Jets have never made the playoffs with him, so... We'll see how he does in the playoffs because they most likely will make it. But um, one, I have a, one additional question for you guys. Do you think a safety, a player like a safety, who people think might not be like the most impactful player on the team, do you think it was worth giving up that many picks and even another player for Jamal Adams, a strong safety? Um, I do think um, the Seahawks gave up – a little too much for just a safety. I know it's Jamal Adams, one of the top safeties in the NFL. But at the end of the day, one single safety is not going to win you a Super Bowl, you know? Unless they make like a game-winning pick six or something like that. But one player, especially a safety, isn't going to really make you like win a Super Bowl, I guess. So I, I do think they gave up too much for Jamal Adams. But if Jamal Adams proves that he is more than just a safety and can lift the Seahawks' chances by a lot more than we just think he can, then I think the trade will be worth it for the Seahawks in the long run. But right now, I do think they give up a little too much for him. Andrew? I agree with that. I think the Seahawks gave up too much. I think that if we look at um, star defensive players on Super Bowl winning teams, you look at a guy like uh, Ray Lewis, middle linebacker, one of a few Super Bowls, we can just compare it to this past Super Bowl. You look at Tyron Matthew. He's an all-pro safety, but look at a guy like Chris Jones who made so many impactful plays late in that Super Bowl. He had, I think, three batted balls, and also uh, he had a few tackles for loss and a sack, I'm pretty sure. So I think that D-line and linebackers actually contribute more to defenses winning Super Bowl, mainly because of the ability to pass rush and rush the passer. But I still think that Jamal Adams, being a very young player, he has tons of upside and tons of potential. So we'll see how it plays out. 
Now we will head to Campbell for our next topic. The Washington football team. Interesting but unique team. Campbell will review this. Yeah, so um, Washington has picked their temporary name to be the Washington football team. Extremely creative choice. I really like the name. Um, Right now, they're still searching for a permanent name. They're taking votes on what they want to be called. But in the meantime, it's just the Washington football team. And since this happened over a week ago, we'll talk about this very briefly. But um, do you guys think this was a good idea or should they have just picked a name or left it blank for a while until they figured one out? Or do you think naming it Washington football team for the season is a good idea? Um, I definitely think uh, they could have come up with a way more creative name than just the football team. I mean, this news that uh, FedEx uh, had uh, was forcing the Redskins to change their name because FedEx is their main sponsor. Um, that news had been going on for a few weeks uh, before they actually changed their name of temporarily. But I do think they had more than enough time to come up with a more creative name than just the Washington football team. Dean, I got to agree with you on this one. I think that they could have maybe picked a more creative name. I feel like, yes, there are a bunch of names. Like I heard about someone on ESPN who had trademarked a bunch of names acting like, oh, it was a joke to trademark a bunch of names. But um, the, the, the Washington football team were looking at a bunch of those team names. And I think that, yeah, they couldn't just get it all of a sudden. So I think they could have, I like the temporary, I like having a temporary name so they don't rush the decision. I feel like maybe they could have done something else. It's just like saying it's the Washington football team. They might as well call them the Washington DCs. Now we'll move on to my Chargers and their star defensive end, Joey Bosa, who recently got a contract. Dean. Um, Joey Bosa signed a five-year, $135 million extension, according to the Chargers and Adam Schefter. And this deal uh, actually included $78 million guaranteed at the signing and $102 million fully guaranteed. And this is a new record for a defensive player. So, Tyler, what do you think about that? Because you're a huge, diehard Chargers fan. So what do you think about uh, this huge extension that Joey Bosa has just received? Oh, yeah. Like you said, I'm a diehard Chargers fan. I like this. He's been very consistent over the years. He's had some injury problems, but when he's not injured, I think he's always the most impactful player on the team and on the field. And this is kind of a funny stat. Miles Garrett got an extension a couple weeks ago. His record for the richest total guaranteed defensive contract in the NFL lasted only 13 days. And so now Joey Bosa holds that. Uh, so I think it's kind of funny that is that Miles Garrett had that record for only about two weeks. So personally, I think that it, I like having Joey Bosa on our team for the next six years. I think that he's always been a great player. I think that him and his brother are two of the best defensive ends in the league. And I just look forward to seeing me on, him on the field, especially playing for my team uh, for the next couple of years, more than couple, six so I have a quick question for you, Tyler. With you being the biggest and, frankly, only Charger fan on planet oh, good Earth, one, good one. Good um, how many games do you think the Chargers are winning this year? And if they, if you think they're going to make the playoffs, where, where are they going to end up in the playoffs? I, okay, I'm going to try to not be biased here. It's hard to not be biased. But, Noah, I'm going to go I'm gonna go about 9-7 and seven, or 10-6. and 9-7. and seven. No, I'm going to go 9-7. and seven. Because I think that our defense is a top-tier defense in the league. We're a top-three defense. I personally think we have the best secondary in the NFL. Derwin James, Casey Hayward, Desmond King, um, Chris Harris Jr. And we have a really fast linebacker in Kenneth Murray, who just joined our team. We have 
Drew Tranquil, who's an upcoming um, linebacker, Denzel Perriman, who's a good hitter. We have Melvin Ingram on our defensive line, Joey Bosa on our defensive line, Menville Joseph on our defensive line. And I think that if Tyrod Taylor can step up like he did with the Bills years ago, I think that he could maybe lead us to a potential playoff spot. I think he could lead us to maybe with the expansion of the playoffs, I think he could lead us to the sixth or seventh spot in the playoffs. So I know that might sound a little biased, but I got my reasoning behind it. So, yeah. If the Chargers go 10 and 6, the Giants are going 11 and 5. I said 9 and 7. I said 10 and 6 potentially if we really do play well. I respect uh, I, I think uh, Tyler saying Tyrod Taylor will be able to lead the Chargers offensively to a 9-7 and seven record is totally laughable. Um, I was actually laughing on the Zoom call when Tyler said that because uh, Tyrod Taylor, there's no way he can lead his team into a, pl- into a playoff spot. Like, that's not going to happen. There's- he, led a, he led a Bills team with an old, like, I mean, the, a Bills team, he led to a 9-7 and seven spot. They lost in the first round of the playoffs, but he led them there. They had literally – they didn't have one pro bowler on the offense. So, if he – and we have Austin Eckley, very versatile. Keenan Allen, who's a pro bowl wide receiver, who we're going to talk about right after this. Mike Williams, who's a good receiver. Hunter Henry, who's a good uh, tight end. And we have a better offensive line than we did last year. And he's a mobile quarterback. So, I think that he potentially – could be better than people are saying. Um, I, I, I do semi-agree with you saying that he might be a little underrated. But what I don't understand is that the Chargers drafted a quarterback with their first-round pick. And they are deciding to start Tyrod Taylor, who they are saying is going to be a mentor for Justin Herbert. And yes, I don't... that's the He is going to be a mentor for Justin Herbert. I don't think that Tyrod Taylor is fit to be a mentor for an up-and-coming quarterback like Justin Herbert. I think he should take initiative and start as the Chargers starting quarterback. Like, why not? The Chargers don't have much to lose. As many people think, they won't win more than seven games. So I think there's nothing to lose. Start Justin Herbert instead of Tyrod Taylor. That's all I'm saying. Tyrod Taylor Tyrod Taylor has one year left on his contract. We might as well use him. We might as well develop Justin Herbert and rest him for a year, maybe – play him at the end of the year if we're, if it, if we're not in a playoff spot or if, we, if we're in a playoff spot and we have nothing to play for. But I think that, yeah, it's uh, we don't need to play him this year. Okay, now we're going to move on, keeping it on the same Chargers topic. So we're going to talk about the Keenan Allen and Mike Evans Twitter feud over the NFL 100 rankings. Earlier this week, Keenan Allen was ranked 77th on the NFL 100 rankings. And after his ranking came out, he tweeted at Mike Evans, the wrong Chris Godwin, and Tyreek Hill saying he's done being underappreciated and that he's better or just as good as all three of them. Mike Evans, who's ranked 30th, responded to Keenan saying that he respected his confidence, but they were not on the same level. This led to a trending Twitter exchange, and now we're each going to pick a side in this debate and back up our choice of Mike Evans or Keenan Allen with some statistics. Uh, We'll start with Dean, who is going to argue for Mike Evans. Yeah, so I will be arguing that Mike Evans is a better wide receiver than Keenan Allen. So last season, Keenan Allen was ranked 6th in receiving yards, and Mike Evans was ranked 13th, 7 spots behind him. So you would think that Keenan Allen had technically a better season, but Allen only had 42 more yards than Evan. And Keenan Allen is the number one wide receiver on his team. Mike Evans is the number two wide receiver, and he's behind Chris Godwin, who had one of the best receiving years 
last season. He was one of the best wide receivers last season. So for Mike Evans to put up almost as good as receiving yards as uh, Keenan Allen, I think he's a better wide receiver than him. And Mike Evans also missed three of the games last season. Keenan Allen barely put up better stats than him when Mike Evans had played three less games than him. So I am on Mike Evans' side for that reason. Okay, Andrew, you want to refute that with your own statistics? Yeah, I actually, I am going to take the side of Keaton Allen in this heated debate. First, I'd like to bring up the catch rate of both of these star wide receivers. First off, Keaton Allen's catch rate is 69.8%, and Mike Evans' catch rate is 56.8%. So that means that Keenan Allen, when he's being guarded, has oh, has more catches than Mike Evans, and he's way more consistent, and he makes, obviously, more catches by that catch rate. So I think that, you know, when the Chargers go up against teams in the AFC, like the Chiefs, who have a good defense, and teams like the Broncos, and even teams like the Patriots, so you got a guy like Stephon Gilmore, Keenan Allen is more likely to catch the ball and get open and make more catches against these star-studded cornerbacks than Mike Evans is because based on this stat, it proves that Mike Evans struggles when he's being guarded by cornerback number ones and Keenan Allen thrives in these situations because of his consistency. And now Tyler will uh, talk a little bit about Keenan Allen's consistency over the past three years. So I'm going to add something about Keenan Allen here. As a Chargers fan, I've been watching Keenan Allen. He's played all 60 games over the past three years and he's the only player in NFL history to record three consecutive games of 10-plus catches, 100-plus receiving yards, and at least one touchdown. And Mike Evans hasn't done that, and I just think that shows that Keenan Allen has always been a consistent receiver when he's healthy. And this season, Mike Evans only played 13 games, and Keenan Allen played all 16, so I think it shows that Keenan Allen's more of a reliable receiver right now than Mike Evans is. Okay, so uh, Tyler, your point was a good point, but... Your statistics were simply based off of three games, and I don't think that's a fair way to measure a player's skill. And in his career, Mike Evans averaged 15.7 yards per reception, and Keenan Allen only averaged 12.2. Keenan Allen only has more yards in a season because he's getting more opportunities than Mike Evans. Last season, Evans averaged 17.3 yards per reception, and Keenan only averaged 11.5. Now we'll move on to Dean, who's going to prove why Evans is a better wide receiver than Allen with some more statistics. Um, So Tyler and Andrew, I'm just going to lay on some career stats uh, for Mike Evans compared to Keenan Allen. I just want you guys to let this sit in just a little, okay? So Keenan Allen and Mike Evans have pretty similar careers. Uh, Mike Evans has played four uh, more career games than Keenan Allen has. And that goes back to Tyler's point where he says Keenan Allen is more reliable because he... Uh, because Mike Evans has missed three games last season, but he still played more career games. Uh, anyways, even though he only uh, Mike Evans has only played four more career games than Keenan Allen, he has scored 14 more touchdowns than Keenan Allen has. So uh, Evans also has 80 less career interceptions than Keenan Allen. So he is getting more touchdowns than Keenan Allen. You mean receptions. You mean receptions. Um, anyways, um, Evans has 80 less career uh, receptions than Allen which means he's caught the ball less times than Keenan Allen, and he scored more times than Keenan Allen, and he averages more yards whenever he catches the ball than Keenan Allen. So I don't see where Keenan Allen tops Mike Evans. Okay, this is what I'm saying. So in size, Mike Evans is a taller wide receiver. He's more of a deep threat. That's why he catches more touchdowns. 
Keenan Allen's more of a short kind of player. He catches more balls. That's the type of player he is. He has way more, as you said, he's 80 more receptions than Mike Evans in their career, and he's only played one more year. And that's what I'm. That's all. That's what I'm saying. He he's. They have completely different skill sets. Mike Evans, the go up and grab it kind of guy that just gets it in the end zone. Keenan Allen's the more type of. <laughs> Keenan Allen's the type of guy that just catches everything. His route running is insane. And I have something to prove that his route running is insane. insane. So, as I said, Keenan Allen's a top-tier route runner in the NFL. All pro-tier cornerbacks like Richard Sherman and Stephon Gilmore, according to Bleacher Report, said Keenan Allen is a really good route runner and he is very hard to cover, one of the hardest in the league to cover. So, as you said, Keenan Allen's ability to get open in space and catch more balls is better than Mike Evans, which makes him, in my perspective, more of a reliable target and a better wide receiver. Um, I'd just like to refute one more thing you said. Uh, you said Keenan Allen is one of the best route runners in the NFL. I never said he wasn't. And also, you said Mike Evans is a deep threat, which means he's always catching long bombs in the end zone. It's not like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just chuck up the ball every single time. Okay? That's it's not, not like, what I said. That's not what I said. I know, I but said you said he's a deep also, threat. Mike Evans is faster than Keenan Allen. He, you said he's, like a, to, you said like he's a deep uh, threat. That's all I'm saying. He, it's not like he always catches 60-yard touchdowns. That's not what happens. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Most of his routes are deep routes. So when he I would goes just like to say routes, he's more likely to catch touchdowns than Keenan Allen is. I would okay. just like so to point Allen out one thing. We're going to go to Andrew now. I'd just like to point out one thing about the Chargers offense. Um, Tyler brought this up a little bit. Keenan Allen is not the designated deep threat on that team. They have Mike Williams, who is, I think, a for sure top 10 deep threat in the league. He can go up and get contested catches um against any cornerbacks in the league so i think that the reason why you don't see keenan allen going up and making those catches because they already have someone on that outside position keenan allen is more of a rack receiver run after catch he does his job after catching the ball so he's so consistent at catching the ball that every time he catches it he always gets uh yard after catch and so it's really hard to compare two wide receivers i think where one of them is more of a rack catcher and one of them is more of a deep threat and also, Mike Evans, this was his first year having worse numbers than Chris Godwin. He's been the wide receiver one his whole career on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, besides this past year, where he still had a very good year, or as well as Chris Godwin, who obviously had a Pro Bowl season and played very well. But that's I think the that, thing. He was wide I think receiver. Two, I think that's just two different types of wide receivers you're comparing, so that's why this comparison is a little harder to come up with a conclusion. I understand that, but you would think that Keenan Allen would have more touchdowns than Mike Evans because Tyler said he's played one more season, which is why he has more receptions. But why doesn't he have more touchdowns? Because in, in because in earlier in his career, he was, like I'm saying, recently he hasn't been injury prone. He's played all 16 games the past three seasons. But early in his career, he was more, in, he was more injury prone than he is now. Keenan Allen, in his first season, he only played... He played 15 games in his first season, 14 in his second, then eight in uh, eight games in his third season, and one in his fourth. So, yes, really early in his career, he was sort of consistent. I mean, he played almost every game. But mid-career, he, he was injured. But recently, he's been very, very good and very consistent. And I think I have one more stat for you guys today. Keenan Allen has been one of the most consistent wide receivers in the NFL recently. He's been on the field for all 16 games from 2017 to 2019, which is the past three seasons. And during that time, he's seen an average of 101 catches for almost 1,000 
300 yards, and six touchdowns per year. So as we see, he has a bunch of catches each year, a bunch of yards, but not as many touchdowns because he's more of a racket catcher, like Andrew said. He ca- he catches more balls, but less touchdowns. All right. Now, that was definitely a nice heated debate, and we've got some quick breaking news now. Forbes has just released their annual Most Valuable Sports Teams of 2020, and with no surprise, we have the Dallas Cowboys at number one with a worth of $5.5 billion, $500 million in growth from last year. As we look they're at the, the number biggest, two, they're the biggest sports team in the country, but they still can't win a playoff game. As we look at the number two team, the New York Yankees with five billion. Hey, Tyler, don't disrespect the Cowboys. They won in nineteen ninety six. As we really look at the number man. three they're team, really surprisingly, the New York Knicks for being the most disappointing terrible, team in the NBA every are worth year. Four point six billion. I think Andrew. it's funny to see how the worst team in the NBA can be worth or two hundred thousand more dollars. It's that New York bread. It's the New York bread. The top. All three of those teams are your favorite teams. I was about They're to. The I was most valuable teams in the country. I was about, and they're your favorite. Teams. I was about to get to that. My three favorite teams, coincidentally, are the most valuable teams in the NBA franchise. Which means that the teams that I root for probably have the smartest owners. I'm just gonna put that out there. But as we look at the number four and five teams, we've got. Are you the joking? Lock, are you got, joking? Are you joking? So you're saying James Dolan is a good owner? Are you joking? James Dolan is a good owner. James Dolan is not a good player's owner he cannot build a nba winning franchise yet he can put money in his pocket he can make the big bucks it's because new york is a powerhouse it's new york it's new york city of course they're gonna get a lot of tickets of course they have a lot of money it's new york city what else do you expect now we will move into a newly created tradition the shot clock 24 second segment okay so I will propose a prompt for everyone to answer, and then we will all have 24 seconds to answer the prompt, and I will time it on my phone. Okay, so the prompt is, there have been recent debates on social media about Dak Prescott and Carson Wentz, and who is a better quarterback. So, who would you rather have as your starting quarterback on your team right now? Prescott or Wentz? Campbell, 24 seconds on the clock. Ready? Go. So, as a Giants fan, I would personally pick Daniel Jones as my quarterback, but if I had to choose, I would choose Dak Prescott as Carson Wentz is more injury-prone because he's missed eight games in his first four seasons. However, Prescott has started all 64 games in his first four seasons. Also, Prescott threw for three more touchdowns than Wentz last year, and the Cowboys have a better rushing attack than the Eagles, which means Wentz is getting more opportunities to throw the ball but Prescott is performing better as he also threw for 850 more yards than Wentz last year. Time. Okay, now Dean. 24 seconds on the clock. Ready, set, go. So if I'm going to choose between the two quarterbacks, I'm also going to go with Dak Prescott. Uh, I previously said that I like uh, Carson Wentz better as a quarterback, but I do think Carson Wentz still has a lot to prove in the playoffs as he's been injury-prone the entire time, every single time he's been in the playoffs. And a fun fact is Derrick Henry has more passing touchdowns than Carson Wentz in the playoffs. Like, a running back cannot do that. So Dak Prescott, he throws for more yards. I know he's not as proven right now, but I bet he's going to have a better season next season than Carson Wentz. Time. Now, Andrew. 24 seconds on the clock. Ready, set, go. I'm going to try not to sound biased with this uh, debate because I am a Dallas Cowboys fan, but I do believe Dak Prescott's a better quarterback. He's not as injury-prone. He has not missed a game due to injury yet uh, in a season. Carson Wentz has 
both times he's been on the team, the Eagles have made the playoffs when they won the Super Bowl. He had nothing to he had he had a good regular season, but nothing to do with the playoffs. Dak Prescott has already won a playoff game. He's done for more career total yards and touchdowns and only one more interception, which people always blame him for throwing interceptions. And he's also played more games, which gives him more opportunity. So I think overall Prescott's a better quarterback. Time. Good job, Andrew. Okay, now I'm gonna go. I will be timing Tyler. You have twenty four seconds starting now. Okay, so I'm going to disagree with all of you guys. I'm going to go Carson Wentz. I think when Carson Wentz is 100%, he's the better quarterback. As shown when the, in the year when the Eagles won the Super Bowl before he got Kurt, Carson Wentz was an MVP candidate, even a front runner. And I think that he, when he's healthy, he's a better quarterback than Dak Prescott. And if he can stay healthy for a full year, like he did last year, where he led the Eagles to a playoff spot and Dak Prescott couldn't, I think that Carson Wentz could potentially be a good quarterback and even better than him. Time. And that is all we have for you today. Thank you so much for listening to At The Buzzer Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at ATBuzzerPodcast and on the platform you are listening on today. I'm Tyler Fertel, along with Campbell Klein, Dean McCollum, and Andrew Lubliner, signing off until next week.